Hey, good morning. You know, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here. And as a church, for quite a while, we've been studying through the book of 1 Samuel. And this morning, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So that's, if you're new to the Bible, that's like close to the beginning of your Bible, like in the front fifth or something of that. Um, and there's First and Second Samuel. They're both pretty big books. So if you just flip your way through, you should be able to find it. Um, and we're in chapter 24 this morning, and and we should be finishing First Samuel by the end of December. I mean, by the end of November, and then in December, <laughs> why are you guys laughing? <laughs> um, the end of December would still be good for me. So, like, uh, by the end of November, and um, uh, and then we'll start our Advent series in December, uh, and then start something new in January. But, you know, the, the book of 1 Samuel and where we've been, if you're just joining us, is, is the story of the rise of the monarchy in ancient Israel. And we've been caught in the middle of this section be, where there's this struggle between Saul, who's, who's the legal king of Israel, and David, who's been anointed by God to replace King Saul as king in Israel. And, and the story, like over the last several weeks, has been where Saul is hunting down David to try to kill him because when you're king and somebody else is going to replace you, you try to eliminate that person. That's kind of what kings do. You know, and this, this, this account, though, is interesting for us because it's not just a historic account about the rise of the monarchy in ancient Israel. I think there's something about the story that exposes something in our own hearts because the reason why the, the nation of Israel had a king like, like Saul, a king that was like the nations, a king that, that didn't serve them but instead took from them and, and oppressed them and, and what we saw a couple of weeks ago killed them, is that, is that we often... It, it exposes something in our own hearts that we look for safety and security and comfort and significance in places and in people that God doesn't want us to look for it in. And we get distracted from pursuing Jesus and, and place our hopes in other things or in other people. It's one of the things that happens uh, in human life, and it's what's happened with the nation of Israel. They've been stuck with a king who is like the nations. But God doesn't just leave his people like to their own devices by, by his grace. Like he's raised up for them another king that's in accordance with his heart for his nation. Um, and it's David who um, at some point in time is going to replace King Saul. You know, in, in this morning's text, we're going we're gonna to have an interesting story, like the, the whole story takes an unexpected turn, where David's been on the run, like barely escaping death all the time. In today's story, the tables are going to be turned, and, and Saul's the one whose life is at danger. And what we're going to find out, our story's going to break, break out into three, into three main points. I've entitled it Mercy in the Caves, like, spoiler alert, like, David is going to grant mercy to King Saul. But the three things is that there's this opportunity provided in verses 1 through 7. And then in verses 8 through 15, you're going to see David give an appeal to King Saul. And then in verses 16 through 22, you're going to see King Saul make an admission back to David. And so um, we're going to, I'm just going to go read the first seven verses for that first point. So please stand with me as we read God's word together. Then I'll pray and then we'll get into the text. <clears throat> this is God's word for his church. Now it came about that when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way, and there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. 
And the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. And it came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me, Because of the Lord, that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. And David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul rose, left the cave, and went on his way. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for the fact that you work your purposes through imperfect people. through people who rise up in rebellion against you like Saul, through imperfect people like David, and that, um, and that you even work your purposes through people like um, each of us in this room. So, Father, I would just ask that you would use your spirit. Your spirit would just empower us to learn from your word today, empower me to speak and, and change our hearts so we would love you more. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, it's interesting as we get off in this, uh, get off at the beginning of this story, like uh, it, it starts off saying like, now, now Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines. He, it's tying us back into the story we saw last week. And last week, if you remember, David and his men were on one side of the mountain. Saul had sent his troops around both sides of the mountain to encircle and, and capture David. And right before David was going to be captured, the Philist- like Saul got word that the Philistines had, had attacked the land. And the, all of the armies of Israel were in the pursuit of David at that point. So they had to break off their attack and go uh, defend the land against the Philistines. Apparently, Saul was successful because it says that he had pursued them. So after he pursued them out of the land like and, and secured the land again, uh, one of, somebody came and like narked off David once again. And he said, verse 1, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, the the wilderness of En Gedi, um, I I was actually there. I got to go to Israel a few years ago. I think it was 2018. I got a picture of it up here. The wilderness of En Gedi um, is north of Masada. This top picture is the ruins of Masada. We climbed up there at sunrise and watched the sunrise from Masada. It was pretty cool. And and if you look north of Masada into that lush like land... um, that is the wilderness of En Gedi. And in fact, the, the place of En Gedi itself is, is a spring, which you see, uh, you see this isn't the, like, the head of the spring. This is just where the water is trickling down. You see the waterfall there, and then you see along this canyon the trees there because that's the only water from as far, for as far as you can see. There's the Dead Sea on one side. There's just wasteland on the other side. If you were here a few weeks ago, it's like Wyoming, right? Eastern Wyoming. And it's just dirt. So when the reason why this is important is that when Saul hears that David is in Gedi, there's not very many places you can be. He's going to be in this canyon where there's water because there's no drinkable water for miles around. Um, that The stream that you're looking at is about 10 miles north of Masado. Um, that, that. So it's right there in the middle of that wasteland. And it's a canyon. And in this canyon, you can see the canyon walls there. In this canyon, like there's caves. You can actually see little caves like all over the walls there. There's caves in this canyon. 
And, and so what's, what happens is Saul takes 3,000 chosen men, it says. Like, these are elite troops. Like, last chapter, we saw the entire armies of Israel out of, were, were out after David. But this time, David, Saul only takes, like, 3,000 of the best troops in all of Israel to go pursue David, which is still overkill because David only has 600 men. And, and David's 600 men aren't even aren't even soldiers. Like it says that they were like, what, the riffraff, the guys that were in, in debt and like were, remember that from a few chapters ago? They were just like a bunch of riffraff that came and followed David and, and there was only 600 of them. And here we have Saul with 3,000 men coming to hunt David down and there's really only one place that he would bother to look and it's here, it's there in that canyon of En Gedi. And David is outnumbered five to one. Now, this is where the story takes a humorous turn, because typically, like, how many of you guys have been watching, like, you know, MSNBC or Fox News or anything? Do they report often on Biden's, like, bathroom habits? <laughs> Not often. I don't know if I've ever seen that. With all the crazy media reporting we have around us, I've never seen that one. Uh, I did know somebody that worked in the White House, and he said that the he said that the, this is totally not in my notes. This is bonus for you. <laughs> because the White House is this old building. He says that the, the bathrooms that the press use, like in the White House press briefing room, are really, really old and the plumbing's really bad. Like the, they don't drain well. And so they frequently like plug up and overflow. And one time he was in the White House briefing room as the president's speaking and somebody flushed the toilet and it was like overflowing like <laughs> across the floor. It's not near as elegant as it probably looks on TV. So, yeah. The, uh, I'm not even going to comment on that. So, where was I? Oh, yeah, bathrooms, right? So here you have it. You have it right there in verse. Um, he quickly, like, we quickly, like, get into, like, this junior high territory and I, and where my humor lives, right? Verse 3. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way, and there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Okay? Like, it's not a mystery there. I actually did the research on it because we were debating it during staff meeting. He's going number two, um, <laughs> if, you guys are do, if you guys are wondering. So... My commentary actually used the phrase, evacuate his bowels, but I'll just go with number two. So you guys are, I mean, you guys got to cut me some slack this morning. Like how often do I get to preach a text with this going on, right? It's probably the last time in my life that's going to happen. So I'm going to uh, enjoy it while I can. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have time for it. Okay. So what we find out is that David, Saul's in there doing his thing. His, uh, his, like he would have left his bodyguards and everybody outside. So Saul is alone in the cave with his pants down, right? And what we find out is that David and his men are in the inner recesses of the cave. And there's this whispering that goes on. We, we have the, I'm sure they're being quiet, right? We have this comment, verse 4. And the men of David said to him, behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. You know, it's, so David's men are like, man, behold, this is the time, right? This is the moment that we've been waiting for. Like Saul's in here by himself in the dark and has no idea where he is. Like God has delivered him up to you on a platter for you to like free us from this and take your like, place as king. 
You know, the interesting thing about that, though, is that God never said that. Like, there's nothing in the text before that that said that God ever said that to David. But what we do have, if you look back at 1 Samuel 23, verse 4, I've got it up on the screen. 1 Samuel 23, verse 4, David said this to, God said this to David last chapter, that David inquired of the Lord once more, and the Lord answered him and said, And rise and go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So just in the chapter before, God had told David that if he went to go save the city of Keilah, that the Philistines would be delivered into his hand. And now the David's, David's men are kind of like generalizing that thing that God said and, like, and making it about not just the Philistines and not just that moment. But they're like, hey, like God's promised he's going to give all of your enemies into your hand. And here's the moment. You know, they're probably pretty well-intentioned, like, they know that David's been anointed to be king. They know that Saul's a tyrant, that he had just slaughtered like the God's priest, that this guy, like, in, from every practical purpose, deserves to die. They, they see that God's hand had been with David to deliver him and to give him victory over his enemies. And so they're like, hey, this is the time for you to take the kingdom. You know, I think it's a, it's a warning to us, like, Oftentimes we, we, and this happens all the time, like we take promises of God and without really understanding or like paying attention to what's really being said and what's really not being said, that we just kind of make those say what we want them to say. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's kind of what these guys were doing. They were tired of being hunted down like criminals. They wanted it to be true. It, it, all the circumstances were pointing it to be true. So they told David, like, this is the moment. And as a be careful when you not to be impatient with the Lord and twist his promises around to make them say something that they actually don't say. But God was going to give the kingdom to David. What we're going to find out, it wasn't in this very moment. And, and so often, I think what we do is we take the promises of God that are going to be ours in Jesus Christ that are so deep and rich and substantive and true, and we get impatient and we just diminish them to be things like, I, I want a better car and I want like the, the sickness to pass me by and I want like, and we and we like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal, we take the promises of God and by twisting them around we make them mean very little. And we, and we turn out to be liars because we claim that God promised something that he didn't promise. That's what was going on with David's men. They were like, hey, this is the time. And, and then there's this, moment of, there's this moment of suspense. Then David arose, right? We, if you've been in Sunday school, if you've been in the church a long time, like you probably know where this story is going because this is one of the stories that always makes Sunday school curriculum. I don't know if they put the pooping in there, but do they, Sunday school team? What kind of lame Sunday school curriculum do we have? <laughs> How many times can I work it in? <laughs> but David arose, and, and you can imagine the scene playing out as kids are hearing this story being told to them for this first time. Like, he's got his dagger out. He's stealthing up to Saul in the darkness of the cave. Saul's indisposed. He approaches him, and then he cuts off the edge of his robe and sneaks back to his man. It's like, what? Like, this was the chance. And But even then, it's interesting. Like, 
the, the men must have wanted to rise up. We don't see any more dialogue, but it says this in verse um, in verse 7. But David persuaded his men with these words. The words were, were in verse 6. I'll look at them in just a minute. And did not allow them to rise up against Saul. So like they all wanted to rush him and take him down. And David's like, no, 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 we can't. And his conscience was bothering him because he had acted in a way that was disrespectful to the king. And look what he says in verse Look what he says in verse, um, verse 5. And it came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Now, there's a whole bunch of ways that that could be taken, like if you were Saul and you were everybody looking onto this situation. It could be taken as just an act of disrespect. He's the king. You don't sneak up on the king and cut off a piece of his robe, right? It could be, it could be actually even seen as like rubbing like the fact that Saul's dynasty was coming to an end into his face. Because if you remember several chapters back when Saul like was told by Samuel that his kingdom was going to be torn away from him, it was, he communicated that because Saul had tore his, like Samuel's robe. And so by like, ta- like by in a sense, tearing Saul's robe, you're like alluding back to that moment and rubbing it in his face. And like David's like conscience starts to bother him about how he treated the king. And he says this in verse six, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, talking about Saul, the Lord's anointed because God had chosen him to be king to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. David's statement is really amazing. God had appointed Saul king. Saul was a godless tyrant of a king that, that had just slaughtered the priests of the Lord. But guess what? He was still king. And David's like, you know, as my king, I should like respect him. As my king, I should not like lift my hand against him. As my king, I should honor him. And what I just did didn't do that. And his conscience was bothering him. And, and when it says that he persuaded his men, it's kind of a weak word there. Actually, it's, it, like some of your Bibles might actually have a footnote. It actually means to, to tor- tear them apart. Like when he told them that Saul was like God's chosen king and he wasn't going to like usurp the, the kingdom. Like that convicted them. It tore them apart and they didn't attack him. Now think about this for a minute. Like the opportunity that was before David... There was this opportunity that the men saw that because any time like something like this would happen, like it's clear indication, like you go kill that guy. The guy's trying to kill you. You get him first. Do unto others before they do unto you, right? Like, is that in the Bible? It's on your calendar? No? Okay. Making sure. But David had, David had the opportunity, but it wasn't the opportunity like his men thought. It was opportunity for David to say, what kind of king am I going to be? Am I going to be a, the type of king that is going to usurp like, like God's order of things? Am I going to be a king that tries to accomplish things in the ways of like all the nations around us? Am I going to be a king like the nations? Because any other king would have done it. Or am I going to be a king that like respects the Lord, follows the Lord, patiently waits upon the Lord to accomplish his purposes for him? David lets Saul go. Because he, he wasn't a king like the nations. He wasn't a king that was going to operate under the same like, rules that everybody else operated. He was going to walk in faith and trust in the Lord. 
Now, before we move on, let me just make a couple places of application because you think about the division between Saul and David. It doesn't get any further than that, right? Like, they're completely, like, their relationship is completely broken. Saul has been hunting him for, like, probably months at this point in time. David's been running, barely escaping death over and over and over again. Saul had sent assassins. Saul sent the army. So, like, Saul threw his own spear at him. They were, they were polarized. They were separated. And they were, like, enemies, right? Sounds similar to today. You know, in our, in our age today, like, it's... It's, it's not a surprise if I say to you, you know what, we live in a divided age. Is that news to anybody? Right? We live in a divided age. In fact, I was reading today, like, if you look at, like, the, the political views of, like, college students today, our political division looks to be getting worse, not better. Like, we're getting further and further and further apart as people in our nation. We are divided. And look what David didn't do. David didn't use Saul's disobedience to, as an excuse for him to rise up against him. He didn't use Saul's disobedience and guilt as an excuse to disrespect him. He didn't use, uh, he didn't use the opportunity before him to get the upper hand. We're going to see in a minute, like what he did is like remarkable. But listen to what Paul tells us to do in relation to our governing authorities, because that's what David David was responding to the fact that God had appointed Saul as king. Look what he says in Romans thirteen one. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Think about that for a second. Like, there is no authority except that which is established by God. He goes on to say, I mean, and I don't have this on the screen. I think it's in the very next verse. Like, so he who resists that government resists the ordinance of God. Like you don't want to, and that's what David was doing. He's like, I'm not going to resist God's king. But then at the end, at the end of that section in verses 7 and 8, um, this, is, this is how Paul concludes that section. He says, render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear. Now listen, honor to whom honor then he says this, which is more remarkable. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You know, what Paul's telling the church is in an in a age where there's tyrants and, and division and everything, we as God's people should be known by what? Like showing honor to those that honor is due, to the ones that God has appointed in those positions, like David did to Saul in the cave. But then he says something. He doesn't just speak about those of our relationship with those above us, but our relationship to those all around us. Owe nothing to everyone but to love one another. For he who loves his what? Neighbor has fulfilled the law. He doesn't say he has loved his brother or he who loves the, the person that agrees with him. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So like if... And, you're, and, and if you're like, well, who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus answered that question because somebody else tried to justify himself the same way. I don't have time for that this morning. If you want to know what the person on the other side of the political divide like deserves from you, it's right here. You owe them what? Love. So that's what God called us to do. Like that's what David gave to Saul that moment in the cave. He honored him as king. He responded to him like, gave him mercy. 
you know, I think too often, like, we, we look at the people on the other side and we don't give them love. We don't, like, love our neighbor as ourself. We don't fulfill the law of God and we disgrace the cause of Christ. David didn't do that. He was going to be a king that was different. So what happens next? Uh, verse 8. There's this appeal given in verses 8 through 15. Now afterward, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And while, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. There it is again, right? Honor to whom honor is due. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men, saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now, my father, see, indeed, the edge of your robe is in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you, know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in, in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So what happens next is that as Saul leaves the king and he's going back to his bodyguard and he's going back to his like army of 3,000 men, David like comes out of the cave. This is a huge risk, Right? He comes out of the cave alone and he calls out to Saul and he falls on his face in, in honor of him as king. And, and he, he, makes the, he makes multiple appeals to him. First of all, he's, he says this. He says, um, verse 9, Why do you listen to the words of men saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Interesting, like both David and Saul were getting counsel from people that wasn't good. David's men were kind of like, like bending the like words of God a little bit to make it fit what they wanted it to fit. Saul's men were just making stuff up. Like, hey, David is seeking to harm you. And it's probably pretty believable if you're Saul. For one, your heart is in like inclined against David, so you want to like believe the worst about him. For two, David is going to replace him as king, and the way you replace a person as king is you kill them, right? So you can take their throne. For three, David's got an army after him. Like he's got 600 guys. All of those things like make the story pretty believable. And, and by speaking to Saul, kind of like what was already inclined in Saul's heart, of course he just latched onto it and he's hunting David down under this belief that David is trying to kill him when David's just trying to get away all the time. And in fact, all of the evidence was that David, um, I mean, his, like if the whole story, David did nothing but faithfully serve Saul over and over and over again. And yet Saul's mind was twisted up by the bad counsel that he received. And, and um, he was hunting David down, convinced that David was trying to kill him. You know, I think there's a, a point we can, like, a point that we can uh, put together here is that if you're going to listen to the counsel of men, make sure that it's good counsel. David David saw his men kind of twisting around the words of the Lord and he rebuked them and he didn't listen. 
here's Saul, like took these guys that were just stringing together a series of facts to try to make a point that, that really wasn't true, and he just bought it hook, line, and sinker. Like, and people will tell you all sorts of things, but if you're going to listen to the counsel of men, make first and foremost that it's consistent with God's word, rightly understood, and two, that it actually is like in, in, in accordance with the facts. Saul's men were just like twisting the facts around to make something sound true that wasn't even true. It reminds me of Proverbs. Proverbs gives this warning of wisdom and about what you listen to and what you don't listen to. It says this in Proverbs 18, 17. Um, the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. It's an interesting proverb, right? Like, hey, when you hear a story, like, oh, yeah, that's like, I believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until, like, you hear the other side of the story, right? Saul was here in one side of the story until this moment when David's able to tell him the other side of the story. But what you find out later on in Proverbs 18, verse 21, it says this. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. What he's saying is like, man, like your words can either bring about death. If David would have listened to his men when they twisted God's, word, God's words around, it would have resulted in death. Saul was listening to his men, and he was like bent on bringing death to David. Or they can result in life, and whichever you love, wherever your affections are, you're going to eat that fruit. If your affections are to speak in a way that cuts, like, tears down and twists things around, your life will bear that fruit that the writer of Proverbs is telling us. So make sure you listen to good counsel when you listen to counsel. It's critical. So then David, David says, man, the evidence doesn't like, support this fact that I'm, that I'm hunting you down. In fact, I've got the strongest piece of evidence right here in my hand. Look what he says in verse um, 10. Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord has given you today into my hand in the cave. And some say to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. Like, I had compassion. I had mercy. I will not stretch my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now here, verse 11, here's the evidence. Now my father see, indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. I chose to cut the robe off instead of cut your throat. Know and see and perceive, I think is what it says, that there is no, um, that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you are lying and wait for my life to take it. It's like, Saul, look at the evidence. Like, I could have killed you and I didn't do it, even though you are hunting me down. And then he quotes a proverb. Um, well, verse 12 and 13. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my, my, my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of, wick, out of the wicked come forth wickedness, but my hand shall not turn against you. You know, David like, put himself at risk. He walked out there because he believed what? That the Lord is going to judge. The Lord is going to act. He didn't need to take that upon himself. And then he, makes, he quotes this proverb and he says, but out of the wickeds come forth wickedness. And it's a, it's a proverb that, they, that must have been you know, common in the day. It's not like something that I believe is in the scriptures outside of this point. But what David's making a case is that it's, it's what's our deeds... Reveal the disposition of our hearts. Like what you do, like ultimately, like exposes like who you are deep down inside. 
In fact, and so what, what David's saying is like, hey, this piece of cloth in my hand is proof to the fact that I have no evil intention in my heart. This is the visible evidence of the invisible reality of my heart because I could have killed you and I didn't. Jesus says the same thing in Mark chapter 7. He says this, he says, And after he called the crowds to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are that which defile him. He's saying that your problem is you've got this corruption in your heart. And your heart corruption like sends you down a path of of like doing evil. And even if you try to like dress up your evil behavior with, with like religious living, and you never and you never if you never address the heart issue, you're just like painting a house as like it just rots from within. You need to trans. You need to have your heart transformed if if you're going to uh, if you're going to to uh, be righteous. And then verse fourteen and fifteen, he says this. He says, "After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea?" What David's saying is like, "I am no threat to you, Saul. I'm about as much a threat to you as a dead dog." Like if you see a dead dog on the side of the road, you're probably not like, oh, I better like, watch out. He's going to bite me, right? Or a single flea. Right? Like David's like, I am no threat to you, Saul. Why do you keep pursuing me? And then David says this, the Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me. Now listen to the three things he says. And may he see and may he plead my cause and may he deliver me from your hand. What an amazing like statement of faith. David's like, I'm out here standing before you because I believe I worship and follow a God that sees all things. I worship a God that is going to plead my cause. And I worship a God that's going to deliver me from your hand. And I'm like, what like just think about that for a second. Like if you could wake up in the morning and, and you would be convinced that God sees whatever circumstance you're in that God is going to plead your cause. He's going to be on your side. And he's going to deliver you from the hand of anything that comes up against you. Like, wouldn't it, like, just settle over you like this peace that God sees and he, and he pleads for me and he delivers me. And yet there's a something within ourselves that, well, I'm not exactly King David. I'm kind of a dirtbag, right? Or maybe... If I was God, I would probably be against me. I'm probably sitting more under his judgment. He's actually probably against me, not for me. So I haven't attained whatever standard of righteousness I think I need to attain. Am I the only one that struggles with those thoughts? You know, the amazing thing about the gospel and what God does through Jesus Christ is that, is that there's this amazing doctrine of imputed righteousness, which is this which is this term that means that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, like all of Jesus's righteousness gets imputed or credited to your account. Like not only does your debt get canceled out, but like you get this massive deposit of Christ's righteousness and you're found in him, the scriptures say. And when God sees him, he sees all of Christ's righteousness credited to our account. It's this amazing, unbelievable reality that's like, 
I think, impossible to fully wrap our minds around. Romans 4 says it about this, says it this way. Talking about David. This is a quote from Psalm 32, but he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man who to, to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Do you hear that? He credits righteousness apart from works. In fact, in the same chapter, God says that, that Paul says that God is the God who, who, who justifies the ungodly. David says this in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is man whose sins the Lord will not take into account. David wasn't a perfect man by any means. We're going to see that next chapter. But he was a man who called upon the Lord. He was a man who lived in faith upon the Lord and who trusted in him and who relied upon what God was going to accomplish through like Jesus Christ in the future who experienced God's forgiveness and blessing and his sins were covered and God didn't take them into account and God saw and plead his cause and delivered him. The same reality is true for us. If we, for all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, like you've been brought into this relationship with him where, where God deals with you now as his like precious child and not as like a slave that just needs to be punished for disobedience. He sees and he pleads your cause and he delivers. This had a this moment had a pretty significant impact on Paul on Saul. Look at uh, verses sixteen, verse sixteen. Now it came about that when David had finished speaking that these words to Saul, that Saul said, "Is this your voice, my son David?" Earlier, David had called Saul his father. David's actually Saul's son-in-law. Is this your voice, my son? David. This is the first time we've seen Saul speak David's name for quite a while. Remember a few weeks ago, it was the him whose name shall not be spoken or whatever the quote is, right? Like they just referred to him as the son of Jesse, son of Jesse, son of Jesse. And now you have this like kind of like intimacy and affection. Like because there was a point early in their relationship where Saul like loved David. Is this, is this you, my son, David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. We don't know why he was weeping. Maybe he was weeping over the shame of like what just happened. Maybe he was weeping over genuine conviction of sin and realizing like that that he that he uh that he had fallen so far short of where God would want him to be. Maybe it was just um weeping over cuz he was kind of caught in his like guilt. You know, repentance like proves itself out over time. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see in a couple of weeks if Saul's repentance was genuine or not. But then he says this, verse 17. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. And you have declared today that you have done good to me and that the Lord delivered me into your hand, and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. What Saul is saying is like, man, it is so obvious, David, that you're a better man than me. Because I would have killed you if the places were reversed. And then he actually quotes a proverb himself. I think, I think that's what's going on in verse, um, at the beginning of verse 19. I think that's a quote of a proverb too. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? 
Like, who does that? The way of the world is, and the way of monarchies is, and the way of, like, dynasties and, and kings of this world are that when, when you, the, the king whom you're trying to replace is, like, going to the bathroom in front of you in the dark in a cave, oblivious to your presence, you cut their throat. You don't show them mercy. Like, that's how this world works. And yet David did something completely different. He acted in patience and in faith and in trust of the Lord. And he, trusted, he, he entrusted his life to the Lord to be judged. He didn't take that hand upon himself. It goes on. Verse 20. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. What a huge admission. Saul himself says, oh, this moment proves to me that you are going to be king. Like, what was it? It was the fact that David acted in mercy to Saul. Like, the, the right that David has to be king, like the fact that he's a king in accordance with God's heart, was proven by the fact that he gave mercy, not that he took power. And in fact, like, it was so convincing that Saul himself even acknowledged that you are going to be king because you're a king that's merciful. And you granted me mercy. Like, David's right to be king was proven by the fact that it, under his reign and his rule, enemies find mercy. And it blew Saul's mind because it goes against all of conventional wisdom if you find your enemy, you don't let him go away safely. You grant mercy. And then in verses 21 and 22, he, 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 he still shows that he operates under this worldly system of things. Verse 21, So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut, not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. And David swore to Saul, and Saul went to his home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Verse 21 is just simply a request that when David does become king, that he won't annihilate all of Saul's family like is so often the case. And that he would let his family and his name like continue in Israel. And, and David, being a merciful king, like grants that. Now all of this points us forward to like Jesus. I hope you're sensing that already, right? You know, Philippians chapter 2, we're not going to go there because I, I think for most of us, that's probably a familiar passage. In Philippians chapter 2, it talks about the humility of Christ, how though he was God himself, he, was the, he is the reigning king of the universe, that he humbled himself by taking like the form of a bondservant and humbled himself to the point of death. Like here, David risked his life to show mercy to his enemy, Saul. In the gospel, we have Jesus Christ, not just risk his life. He like lays down his life to show mercy to his enemies sitting in this room. He's the king of the universe and he humbled himself. And then the very next thing it says in Philippians is, therefore, does anybody know what it says? God highly exalted him and placed upon him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? He's the king. 
who laid down his life to show mercy to his enemies. You know, and because of that, he deserves all of our worship and all of our obedience and all of our allegiance. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and called upon him as Lord, he calls you. Now, this is the kicker. Now, listen to this. He calls you to follow him in the same way. Listen to this. Uh, in Luke chapter, well, Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, uh, Jesus is speaking to these crowds and he's been healing these crowds. And it says this in verses 19 and 20. And all the people were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and he was healing them all. So imagine this scene. God, Jesus is there and he has power to heal all sickness. And so everybody's just trying to touch him and crowding him around him. And then Jesus says something remarkable. And turning his gaze towards his disciples, he began to say, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Let's just pause there for a second. He goes into what's known as the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, he basically turns on the head all of the conventional wisdom of the day, saying all of the money of this world, all of the acceptance of this world, all of the power in this world, all of the like things that you so desperately long for, the things that the economy of this world are so tightly bound to in the economy of heaven mean nothing. And in fact, it's following Jesus in his humility that means something. And then after the Beatitudes, this is where I want us to focus on this morning as I close. Brian, you can come up. He begins to, like, he begins to talk to them and, and give them some, some exhortations of how they're to live, this kind of ethical section in Luke chapter 6, verses, starting at verse 27. And I'm going to read it slowly. Just so I can, and I'm, I don't think, think I'm even going to comment on it. I'm just going to let Jesus speak to us through his word this morning. But as we do, like, I think I, I would be surprised if there's not, if, if some of the things that Jesus says in these words isn't going to, like, press each of us, maybe uniquely, in some sensitive spot in our heart and our soul. As I read through these, I can't read through this without my heart raising up and, like, trying to defend myself somehow. And please, like, as you listen to these, this is what Jesus calls us to walk in. Speaks about his kindness and his mercy. But don't just hear it as a list of ethical commands, which it is. But it's a list of ethical commands that as we rise up against them, expose, like, the corruption in our hearts. Because remember, it's what's in our hearts that really matters. If we just try to change our behavior without changing our heart attitude... So the question is this, like as some of these things press against you and make you rise up and make you start to justify and like come up with all the what ifs. I think the question I want to ask you is like, what does it expose about like what you really believe about the mercy of God? What does it expose about what you really believe about the kindness of God? What does it expose about like what you really think you deserve from God? Because this is what Jesus said. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? 
For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Now listen, verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So as we close in song, I just encourage you to just, if, if the Spirit's convicted you on anything there, like, Spend some time this week, like looking into your heart and like, what, uh, what is it about God and your grace that I'm not applying here that makes it so hard to respond like you would want me to to those around me? Because we, we owe it to our neighbor to love them. So Brian, why don't you close us and then I'll close us in prayer.